All right, Lisa. So I've been hearing some rumblings about getting ready for Outspoken, and it's time for me to get my flight, get get everything together here. So help me out. What what do we have here? Details, details. Okay, details. Yes. So if y'all remember, um, a few weeks back, we launched the virtual Outspoken Summit. And this day, this day, um, Tuesday, we are launching our in-person part of the hybrid summit. So we are going to be virtual and in-person at the same time, um, November 12th to 14th. You can buy tickets um, for either uh, on the Outspoken website and it is in Tempe, Arizona. And it's going to be awesome. And we're pretty excited that we're going to be back in person. So for folks who are able to come, then that um, opportunity will be there. And for folks who aren't able to come, they can access all of the workshops virtually. So we'll be live streaming the stuff that's happening in Tempe. And then the people who come in person will have access to those virtual sessions too. Um, and there'll be workouts mm. for both virtual and in-person people and roundtables and keynote speakers and educational workshops. So we're pretty excited that we're able to mm -hmm. do this in 2021 since we missed 2020. So mm -hmm. yay, definitely get your flights. Um, come on down to Tempe. Um, a little bird tells me that a certain podcast host co-host will be presenting so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, who who are you speaking of Lisa I'm not quite sure you know <laughs> <laughs> well I I will do my best to be in place so I'm looking forward to it this is overdue after a year off but sounds like uh we're we're back in motion so I'm super excited to get everybody reconnected whether it's virtually or in, in person uh but it sounds like you have a plan I am super excited let's do this I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa, I have been thinking especially as we've been watching the coverage of the Olympics, or at least the, uh, <laughs> the the reruns of the Olympics, right, Lisa? Because we're how many hours different yeah, um, from Tokyo? A lot. Yes, a lot. Like almost a, uh, half a day, right? Um, but I've been thinking a lot about just women's bodies and what we're saying about women having ownership of their bodies, other people having ownership of their mm -hmm, bodies. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It's just so many directions we can go in. So once again, we're building the plane as we fly, but I get a little ticked off when anybody tells me what I should do with my body. And so I'm imagining athletes at this level, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they should be uh, in their feelings about this. Yeah, it is pretty interesting, right? Because I'm also binging the Olympics. I'm watching it, you know, probably far too many hours a day. Um, and you know, even something as simple as, you know, watching the swimmers and then the male commentators commenting on um, a stroke. And they do they do this for everyone, not just for women. But it is interesting. You know, Katie Ledecky is an outstanding swimmer. And yet these male commentators still find something um, that's wrong with her stroke or her body position. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's just a little thing. I mean, being on display so publicly and then also in terms mm. of that ownership piece you know like you're representing your country and 
mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason, and there are probably lots of reasons that you and I could deconstruct, but that would take us a long time, is <laughs> that then the country, right, the court of public opinion seems to think that they can stake claim to that person's body and that they get to decide what they do or don't do. Oh, yes. Their, their body belongs to the entire country. It's ours. It belongs to us because you have on our colors, right? So, yeah, we, we've got a lot of directions to go in, not just Olympics, but I think the Olympics kind of highlights the problems that are there all the time. So let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, okay, first example, Simone Biles, right? We talked about oh. this in our newsletter. Yes, um, yes, yes. What do you think? So, so let's talk more in more depth. What do you think about that? Like, how did that land for you? Yeah. So yeah. How did that land? No pun intended, right? With Simone, but, (laughs) but you know, with Simone, what I think is so interesting is that I've seen quite a few memes. I've read quite a few articles about all of the sacrifice that an athlete on that stage has to endure in order to be there, whether it's competing with broken toes or competing with a sprained back or you know, all these things kind of reflecting back to Carrie Strug-ish situations, you know, landing on one leg because she had a stress fracture and all those things that Simone has done for, if she wants to say for herself, for the sake of the country, et cetera. And now because she is choosing not to compete on the world stage because of something that is so dangerous, I'm just sitting back thinking, wait a minute, this is this is not okay to even hold a court of opinion on this particular athlete because of all she's already done, all she's already proven. And regardless, if she didn't have one medal and she showed up to the Olympics, this, um, I don't want to call it an ailment. I don't think that's the right term, but the twisties are extremely dangerous based on a number of medical descriptions that I've read in regards to simply not knowing where the ground is, you know, kind of your head and your body are detached from one another midair. So this means you could land on your head. You could land on your neck. You could land, you could land on anything, but your feet. And the court of public opinion is saying, Oh no, Simone, you don't get to back out. You must do this and risk your health. And for some athletes, their lives in order to represent the country, we going a little bit too far with patriotism in in Mm -hmm. my opinion, Mm -hmm. when it comes to that. Um, so, you know, the choice I think is so interesting that we have such a critique. I mean, how did that land for you? Yeah. I mean, choice is a great way uh, to think about it because she is making that choice. And I think she has every right to make that choice. And yet some of the critiques that I've seen are, well, she chose to be a gymnast. She chose to be competitive. She chose to go to the Olympics and she has one job and she needs to do it. Right. I mean, that's not necessarily a new argument. I've heard that in, in other contexts too. Yeah. Um, so choice is being used in both ways, right? It's being used in terms of how she is choosing to um, protect mm-hmm. her mind and her body um, mm-hmm. and step back. And I think that that takes a lot of humility given the level at which she performs. And then you've also got kind of the naysayers who are saying, well, she made all these choices like it's a free choice for her to be at the olympics like like it's free and clear right which it clearly isn't um then she should just suck it up and so 
the way that the way that we think about individual choice, freedom of choice, I think is really interesting. And I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole, but it is reminiscent of how we have framed choice around the vaccine um, in terms of people who are choosing to get it and choosing not to get it. So uh, I wonder how much of this is also a product of kind of this climate that we're in that's so very black and white you know, it's this or it's that. And there isn't a whole lot of gray when there's really, as you and I have talked about a thousand times, it's basically all gray, right? It's always right. complicated and it's always gray. And to That's think right. otherwise is naive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And yeah, I, I'm with you on that as far as choice and how we define it in completely different directions when it comes to choice. Now, I, I do think though that Simone's choice, her decision does land differently because it's on the heels of lots of other um, high-profile athletes, Olympians or otherwise, who've also stated their case around their mental health. Uh, Naomi Osaka, one of my favorites, who you know clearly said, no, I don't need to compete for my mental health, et cetera. And so now that we're starting to see more and more of a pattern of, it, it's almost like another coming out process of, oh my gosh, Olympians or or, uh, world-class athletes who are known as the strongest of the strong still have these proverbial chinks in their armor where they need to step away. And so to me, I think that's where it gets really interesting and how the critique comes down so heavily for women in ways that it doesn't come down for men. So let me share with you another thing that I noticed even online, Caleb Dressel, okay? That's my boo. Okay. If he wasn't married, I I would be stalking him down right now. Okay. I just love the sleeve chat. I love every, as a swimmer, he's just incredible. Right. Um, 20 some years, my, uh, my younger, but what I think is really interesting is that when I read a couple of articles and, and listened to a couple of videos that he did about his experience, he stepped away from swimming for six months because he was having mental health challenges and that has yet to come up. I haven't heard of other male athletes um, being highlighted for their stepping away or maybe they needing to be medicated for some reason or or any uh, attempt to protect their mental health. I haven't seen it. Now, maybe I've missed it. Listeners, if you've seen uh, particulars now, of course, Michael Phelps is one of the more predominant ones, but let's put him in a little bit of a different category. Um, But I haven't seen too many men outside of Phelps that have been highlighted, ostracized, critiqued in such negative ways due to mental health concerns, the way that Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, and many others have. Mm. I I got a problem with that. Yeah. If we're going to talk about mental health, then let's talk about it all. But it seems like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's a courageous thing to do for a Michael Phelps and a Caleb Dressel, if it's even covered at all. But it's a detriment if a Simone Biles, a Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great point because then I'm thinking around like constructions of manhood, right? And when we think about the modern uh, archetype of a well-rounded, desirable male, um, it is it is a man who is quote unquote in touch with their emotions and is able to speak deeply about who they are and understand um, the decisions that they make and be self-reflective in addition to also demonstrating that strength and prowess and protectiveness and patriotism, right? And so 
That's Caleb right. Dressel, right. Michael Phelps really embody that archetype, I think. But the women don't get that same um, grace, right? They Because right. it right. feeds into those stereotypes about women being over-emotional. They can't handle stress. They're not as strong. Um, they really are out of their league. So it, it, re, it has reinforced mm-hmm. some of those um, yep. perspectives, yep. I think. And that's perhaps what we're seeing from the trolls on social media, what I think, which is very unfair. And it's a huge double standard. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Huge double standard. And, you know, I'm 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 kind of petty, like the meme that says, you know, I, I thought I heard somebody who can't do a, a cartwheel say something about Simone Biles. Like none of us are really qualified and unless you are an Olympian. Yeah. And even if you're an Olympian, unless you're Simone or Naomi, it's not your choice. It, it's not your. And so I think we're we're critiquing more of the process of um, we're, we're critiquing the critique <laughs> rather than the decision, <laughs> because there, there'll be some athletes that say that, you know, competing is their therapy. You know, competing is their happy place. Competing is what they do to cope or manage or what have you, whatever may be going on in their lives. We've even heard um, some of the athletes talking about how training for Olympic trials got them through COVID because it was so challenging. So, you know, uh, I'm just saying that everyone handles their mental health a little differently and to critique someone for how they choose to do that is problematic as if Mm -hmm. folks don't have challenges, as if no one deals with depression, as if no one deals with down days. Come on, that's. Mm-mm. That, that's just not true. If you're a human being, you mm-hmm. deal with up days and down days. You deal yeah. with, um, you know, the the chemistry of your brain changing over time. I mean, if you're human, you deal with those things. But I guess that's part of being an Olympian, right? Is that you're quote unquote superhuman and that you shouldn't be dealing with that level of issue, et cetera. Right, which creates the problem in the first place. Um, yes. You know, and as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, Lily King and Annie Laser. Right, they're both swimmers, breaststrokers. Um, yes, and you know they train together. And I guess Lily, sorry, mm-hmm. Annie was going to give up swimming. It might have been right around when her dad died, or maybe it was before, but yeah. she didn't. She ended up training with Lily King, and then when her dad passed away. Lily, Mm -hmm. I guess, drove five, six hours or something and told her mom that she would support Annie and get her to the Olympics, right? And now we know they Mm -hmm. won silver and bronze in the the 200 breast, I think. Um, But what's interesting is every time those two are on screen, that's all the commentators talk about. They talk about mm. how um, this happened to Annie Laser and this was Lily King's response. And you know what I think that's about? I mean, this is just coming mm. to me right now as I'm thinking about this. Is Because yeah. um, Lily King, um, I, I don't know if you've seen any interviews with her, but she's pretty brash, direct. Mm-hmm. She likes to psych out her opponents, right? She yeah. talks about the yeah. things that she does. She speaks her mind. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not sugar-coated, really. Right. So right. The, right. Her, her kind of persona is very um, raw and like focused and competitive. And that mm. is, um, doesn't align with how we think about women, right? Or how That's women right. should be. That's right. That's so they right. push this other narrative of Lily King going to support Annie and bringing her to the Olympics um, and being empathetic and wonderful during this very difficult time for Annie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in opposition, I, th- I think to counteract this kind of 
um, behavior that she has that might be what one might consider a stereotypically male. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've heard that story now and seen the interviews probably like 12 times. Wow. Now that's interesting. Well, and it paints a narrative that may not be wholly true, right? Because I'm, I'm just reflecting on my time when I was having a really bad time after my grandfather passed. And yes, my training partner trained with me every day, making sure that I was good and stable, but she was also kicking my ass every day too. I mean, she was like, yeah, I know you don't want to get wet. Get your ass in the water, get your ass on the bike. We, we're getting these miles in. I know you don't feel like it. Give it 10 minutes and see how you feel. It was not pleasant. <laughs> it was pleasant after I finished it, but it wasn't pleasant when I first got started. But I, I think you're right that that counter narrative is purposeful. You know, it's, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not completely natural. Let me, let me say that it, it, it may be purposeful in a way that kind of puts bookends on what's a male approach and what's a female approach, what's aggressive, what's not, why can't women be aggressive? <sighs> yeah, that, that's a whole rabbit, a rabbit hole that we've yeah. been down before. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I still am seeing um, where, where women athletes who are mothers, that mm-hmm. comes up all the time. And in some cases with men who are fathers, it comes up, but not universally. So, right. you know, yeah. every time Alison Felix is mentioned, um, mm-hmm. it's shortly followed with, and now she's a mom, right? Which, oh, yes. You know, oh, yes. I know she's very proud of, and it's a huge part of our identity. And so I'm not like um, attacking that. That's not what I mean. But that mm-hmm. the commentators are fixated on it in a way that they are not for male athletes. Yeah. Yeah. And I cannot wait because that's one of the things that I wanted to see was, you know, how they interview them, you know, as they're literally catching their breath from the race. Um, And I'm interested to see what that interview looks like, because, you know, they're going to ask her a few questions regardless of where she she could be last and they're still going to interview her, obviously. Um, But God forbid she's last. I want her to pull this off. Um, But. I'm waiting to see whether she brings up her daughter or whether the commentator brings up motherhood first. It, it's one thing if she brings it up and they mm, follow up. It's mm-hmm. another thing if she brings it up first and then they they take it a bit further. So that to me, that's interesting. But now tell me about this, Lisa, because we, we've been talking about women and women uh, owning themselves, if you will, and having their own self-determination and so forth. I'm really loving how these women athletes and some of the teams full teams they're they're pushing back they're saying i'm not interested in having these bikinis on i'm interested in feeling like like you should not have to be on what is it the the cover of sports illustrated swimsuit edition in order to be an athlete but they're being told that this is the required attire and they're saying no we're not going to do it anymore. Men don't have to do it anymore. You know, I, I'm swim skins versus a very small speedo, you know, all of these things that see to me after I thought about it, especially with the women's handball, I was thinking to myself, dang, you have a point that has to be really uncomfortable. Like I never thought about it because I watched for the sport. I really wasn't watching for what they were wearing necessarily. But after I thought about it, I was like, anything is uncomfortable in damn near a thong bikini like almost anything especially a sport Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so now you have you know people like pink that come up and you know has offered to pay the fine for the norwegian women's handball team because they they challenged and said you know pretty much 
Nicole Hannah-Jones phrase has been on my mind a lot. I refuse. I refuse to wear something ridiculous. I refuse to wear something uncomfortable. I refuse to wear something that's not uh, the equivalent of a gender neutral uh, uh, attire for my sport. And so I think that's interesting too, that more teams are saying no and standing in solidarity with one another as they say no. Yeah, because we also have the German gymnastics team, right? That in protest Ah. around the sexual objectification of women, they wore um, outfits that covered more of their body instead of the sparkly leotards that are really cut pretty high. Um, Yes, yes. You know, and so, yeah. And it covers down to the ankle, right? Yeah, I believe so. I believe Uh so. They didn't make it into the finals, so we haven't actually seen much of them, unfortunately. Mm. Um, But it is it is about being comfortable in your skin, being comfortable in a workout attire that helps you be successful versus having to be constrained by these arbitrary parameters that have been created potentially decades ago, probably by men um, around what is feminine and what is not. Um, And so that's definitely coming out at these Olympics. And I have always noticed with beach Mm. volleyball um, that the women wear bikinis. I've always thought that was odd. I've always thought that that felt Mm. a bit um, objectifying to have women, you know, bouncing around on a beach in bikinis, uh, a bit too Baywatch. (laughs) Yeah. 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 um, You know, but I don't play beach volleyball, so I'm not a hundred percent sure whether that is a desirable outfit, but I can't imagine getting sand caught in certain places is particularly comfortable in a bikini. That that's what I'm talking about right there, Lisa, because for me, you know, yes, I do think it's objectification of a woman's body. And to your point of never having played, I need to go deeper into this IOC committee and whoever's making decisions, because I feel like not only is it male dominated decision-making, but it's also folks regardless that have never participated in that sport, making those sports decisions. Like if you were an equestrian uh, athlete in the seventies, I'm not sure if you're equipped to make a decision about beach volleyball in 2021 and their attire. Now you're equipped to think about, you know, if you want to talk about rules or fault lines or any of that, but when it comes to attire, like think about us in triathlon, Lisa, most of the time, even when you're on a a team, most of the time we wear what's most comfortable to us. Like you wouldn't let someone just tell you, Lisa, you must wear those bike shorts and you're going on a 50 mile bike ride. You're like, hold up. I won't make it 20 miles in these bike shorts, period. They're, they're not going to be comfortable. I'm going to be miserable for a week after wearing these mm-hmm. shorts. Yep. I'm yep. not wearing them. And that's what I feel like we do to these Olympians. It's like you are world-class and you don't get to decide what's most comfortable for your sport. That makes no sense to me. None whatsoever. It makes no sense. Well, and I was watching the tennis final this morning, the gold uh, medal final for the women, you know, and I've noticed this before, but in the context of our conversation, right? So the women have to, I think they have to wear skirts. I know at Wimbledon, they still do. And everyone tends to wear skirts. Um, And then they're taking the tennis balls, right? The spare tennis balls. And they're like hooking them under their skirt. And then they're, they've probably got some like shorts, like tighter shorts on under the skirt. And then they hook the ball there to keep it there versus putting it in your pocket, Right. I mean, and that's an issue with women's um, athletic apparel Mm. that we are not going to get into here. But the fact that there is very few pockets that are useful for women, because apparently we don't need to carry (laughs) anything when we're out. But, you know, and so that how I don't know. 
haven't spoken to a tennis player about this, but mm-hmm. that feels like that might be kind of uncomfortable to have a tennis ball shoved mm-hmm. up half of your thigh, you know? <laughs> like, right, 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 right. And that's a product of having to wear a skirt that doesn't have a pocket is my guess. Yeah, yep, yep. Well, and you're reminding me, so my, my colleague, Brian, he talks about this all the time where uh, he teaches in women's and gender studies. And what was so interesting was that many years ago, they had had weeks and weeks of conversation about gender equity and the, the men in the class finally got it when women in the class mentioned that they had so many fake pockets in all of their clothes. <laughs> and men were like, what do you mean fake pockets? What, what? We always have real pockets, right? No, not so for, for women at all. So yeah, th- those types of inconveniences. And, and again, how we get so comfortable. Like I, I was almost kicking myself for not really thinking about, oh, that really doesn't make sense that women's beach volleyball is wearing a bikini. Like that does not make sense at all. And not noticing it because we've all been ingrained with being very comfortable with women wearing certain things and the double standard of it. Because my thing is, oh, how interesting Girls in elementary school have much more critique on what they wear and does it go down, you know, further than the fingertip on the side of your leg. They have more critique on what they wear than Olympians do when it comes to coverage. So why can't grown Mm. world-class elite athletes make their own decision as long as it doesn't give them a unfair advantage? Right. Right. I would think that full coverage uh, for, for a gymnast, I don't know if that would be an advantage or a disadvantage, but I don't see it. It's not like a swim skin that's making you faster. It's it's not making you faster. It's just more coverage. So mm. I don't know. I, I don't yeah. I don't get this. I don't I mean, understand. I think women gymnasts can wear shorts over their leotard if they want. I think that rule did change just as the men get to wear um, shorts, but very mm-hmm. few women, if any, are choosing to do so. And, you know, so we come back to this issue of choice and I'm like, is it, what's the genesis of the choice, right? Because I think about like, you know, when all these sparkly leotards that look really pretty and how we define femininity, particularly, you know, when we're thinking about women gymnasts who are exceedingly strong and powerful physically. So the sparkly Mm -hmm. leotards offset some of that, right? And Mm -hmm. so then are they um, acculturated, you know, and socialized to not want to wear shorts because Mm -hmm. they don't want to further masculinize themselves. So they keep the sparkly leotard, even if this Mm -hmm. stuff is happening subconsciously, rather Mm -hmm. than wearing shorts or something that is perhaps more comfortable because they're trying to kind of offset that um, notion that they are, um, they exude too much maleness because of their strength and power. Like, I don't, I'm just, I again, thought that just popped into my head. Not sure if that's a thing, but. um, Well, but, but I, Yes, I, I'm hearing you completely. And I think this is where let, let's talk about the intersection of age here. We know for at least for gymnasts that they are considered older as gymnasts at age 17 or 18. So the people who are making these decisions are making the decisions on behalf of teenagers. So given that, that's where mm. it to me is a big difference because it's not like you know, 23-year-old, 24-year-old Caleb Dressel going out to 
get a gold in swimming, making a decision on a swim skin. We're talking about 14-year-old, 15-year-old, some 13-year-olds. Uh, and, and their age, to me, I'm like, nah, they're not making those decisions. Someone's making those decisions for them, but they're not making those decisions. And I would wager over many, many decades of this, uh, I'm sorry, but a 14-year-old may not see advocacy for themselves the same way that a Naomi Osaka or a Simone Biles would um, at all. And so what does that mean for them? So I, I think with with gymnastics being a relatively younger sport, we have to weigh in, you know, the comfort mm-hmm. level of those that yeah. are advocating for themselves or or if it's parents, I'm not trying to dis, uh, disregard the parents, parents might advocate for them, but some some structure, just like systemic racism, sexism, and all of the other isms, some system has held this in place for decades. That system may be age, that system may be sexism, it may be all of it at one time, but something held in place the bikinis for, <laughs> for beach volleyball. Something held in place the very skimpy leotards for teenagers who are gymnasts, that are women gymnasts. So and, and it was never challenged in the face of the men's gymnasts that are older and also have more coverage. So we could talk yeah. about the both and, you know? Yeah. And I feel like for in terms of kind of women's bodies and them being on display and ownership, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's all defined under the male gaze is what it feels like to me is that every outfit that a woman athlete has to wear or is um, mm-hmm. chooses to wear, chooses in quotes, is mm-hmm. defined under the male gaze in terms mm-hmm. of. I think the root of that is perhaps that women's sports are not as interesting as men's. And so for us to make them interesting, us being kind of the powers that be, so the largely the white men, um, we need to have um, appealing outfits for women. We need to maximize their femininity. So men who are watching them are aroused perhaps and not threatened um, by their Mm -hmm. power and their strength and their physique. And so Mm -hmm that whole system is has built up over decades oriented to what a heterosexual male wants and then also kind of these um heteronormative gender normative narratives about what it means to be a woman and who gets to decide and who mm-hmm. is feminine or not feminine feminine enough you know, and that's, that's a discussion, I think, for another, another podcast that we should talk about. But yeah, I I do think that there's so much in relation to a woman's body. And their decisions about their body, what to wear, what to do with it, and then these, you know, who thinks that they own that decision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I don't think this is a Olympics only conversation. But I do think it's interesting that we are you know, once again, trying to chip away at that conversation about power and privilege and whose decisions are showing up in rooms and in spaces. And I think, you know, those decisions are showing up in Tokyo. I think those decisions are definitely showing up in the U.S. And I'm loving seeing folks, uh, you know, resist, you know, that resistant capital we've talked about before, where they're saying, I know it's been in place since the dawn of time. And frankly, Scarlett, I don't give a damn. Let's you know, push against it because it's no longer okay and maybe has never been okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this crop of athletes may, they may, may be the first ones 
um, in recent history that are not tolerating the foolishness. <laughs> hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their tests include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>